Good afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to the beautiful Cherokee Casino and Hotel in Cherokee, North Carolina. How did I get here? Not as easily as I would have hoped. So if you're watching Delta Airlines, let's take some notes about how not to do business. I am supposed to fly on a 6 a.m. flight yesterday to Atlanta and then to Columbia, South Carolina, where my former colleague, Matt Frankel, was going to pick me up at the airport. We were going to drive up to the casino, have a couple of days of gambling, then I was going to fly to Birmingham, Alabama for a wedding on Saturday. So I was going to spend Thursday night and Friday in Birmingham, go to the wedding Saturday, fly home Sunday. None of that happened. I woke up at about 3.30 in the morning yesterday to about 15 messages from Delta. First, your flight has been delayed. Well, that's a problem because it's now been delayed to past when my layover takes off. That's, That's a problem. Then, of course, we have the issue of Here are all the changes you can make. Well, that'll get me late, but maybe I'll just rent a car and meet my friends at the casino. That'll be okay. Go to book it. Yeah, those are all gone. Don't worry. We've changed you. Your layover is now the next day. You could spend a full day in Atlanta. That did not work. So what did I, and I don't think I said my name. I am Daniel Brooks Klein. If you're listening to this rant, you know that, of course. Um, I got up at 3.30 in the morning, got in my car, and drove to South Carolina. What an eight-hour drive. Then got in the car with Matt Fickle, with another friend of ours, then drove to the casino, had a nice dinner, gambled all night, and now I am here doing this show with you from right in front of the parking garage, I believe, because I tried to do it outside, which is picturesque, beautiful, the mountains here are amazing, and that didn't work. Uh, The the internet connection works perfectly inside, not at all outside. What are we going to talk about on today's show? I'm going to be joined by Anir Mahante, and we're going to talk about the worker shortage and automation is a shortage of workers going to force companies to automate. There's a major investing angle to this. I'm going to be around to take your questions and comments. This is a taped interview. Uh, it's, it's a little bit long, but I will be here. So if you have comments, please share them. We'll get to them at the end of the show. Um, with that, I'm going to have a cup of coffee. I'm going to sit back and watch this interview. Again, from beautiful Cherokee, North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Anirban Mahante. Sam Bailey, if you want to hit that, we would appreciate it. Back to Seven Investing now, Anirban Mahante. How are things this early, early Tuesday morning over there in Australia? Hey, Dan, a couple of, you know, I have not fixed, tried, well, I'm not trying to fix my hair. So <laughs> usually we would not start a show talking about my hair, but let's talk about it. You know, I was wearing actually a beanie. <laughs> <laughs> because it is miserable and freezing. Uh, and I didn't want to turn on the heater because if I turn on the heater, this room becomes like a sauna. <laughs> so I had a choice between a beanie. So, so yeah, so pardon, you know, uh, I'll say to our listeners and watchers, excuse my hair. And I'm wearing this uh, sweater and stuff. I'm pretty double layered right now. So uh, that's that. Yeah, so, I, yeah it's a, it's a, I've it's a learned fantastic that it's, morning. <laughs> that it's very cold in Australia, which is something I, I, the, the picture painted to Americans of Australia always involves doing something at the beach or maybe like the Sydney Opera House. There is never, <laughs> there, there is never like a TV show that takes place in Australia where people are huddling outside, you know, cold, you know, drinking their coffee. So we don't get the full Australian picture here in the U.S. As a, I'm sure you get a much better U.S. picture because obviously you get a lot of our television shows, right? That's true. Well, here's the thing, though. So part of the picture is actually not incorrect. I live about 60 kilometers 
65 kilometers, which you can divide by, I guess, 1.6 uh, and, and, and get into miles. Um, I think that's correct. No, or multiply, divide by 1.6, I think. Yes, how, long, how long does it take you to get there? That's probably a better. Well, that's a better way to think about it. Yes. So let's say one hour to the city center, right? So it is probably going to be five to six degrees Celsius warmer. And the other thing is that our houses are not insulated because, are not properly insulated, they're insulated, but they're not properly insulated like they are in, in say, Canada, for example, or North America, in many parts of cold and colder um america right they're insulated so what happens is it, it might be actually okay outside it's freezing and miserable inside <laughs> so, so people are outside and it's fine and, and it doesn't you know it doesn't really snow here right unless you go to the mountains so generally we have good weather it's basically a couple of months where i think it's miserable because it rains it's dark so i'm complaining about stuff that i shouldn't really complain about it's raining and dark here, but the one thing we figured out is insulation because insulation holds in air conditioning as well as as well as heat. So our homes and also because Florida, at least uh, southern Florida, is in the path of hurricanes, any recent construction, uh, I think since 2006, uh, at least the ground level is cinder block. So cinder block uh -huh. just naturally on its own. So you'll see a lot of ugly houses here on the outside that inside are gorgeous. Now, obviously, there's ways to mask that and to gussy it up. But there's a lot of very nondescript condo complexes where you look at it, just like cinder block on cinder block, and then you go inside, and it's actually luxury, you know, luxury living. So a little bit strange for someone who comes from New England, where a lot of houses are wood. Uh, I lived in a house from the 1800s that had horsehair plaster in the upstairs bedrooms. You could literally see horsehairs lining the walls. I had copper pipes that were exposed that one turned to dust, but actually easy to fix because it's an exposed pipe. You just go out and get a metal pipe and your plumber friend can come over and fix it. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. As you heard me tease <laughs> at the top of the show, we're going to talk about rising wages uh, and will that usher in automation. Let me set the table a little bit here. So McDonald's, which is 95% uh, franchise owned in the U.S., has basically come out to its franchisees and said, look, at corporate stores, we're gonna raise wages to, uh, to $15 by 2024. And we'd really like you to do that. That follows Walmart, Target, Costco was already there. Uh, e even Chipotle and Taco Bell, uh, two companies that have sort of famously started people at very low wages. Chipotle, I would argue, did it right. They started you at a very low wage and you could advance very quickly. Uh, it was sort of a, you know, a, a, an apprenticeship at first, and you could eventually, in a couple of years, work your way into management, maybe in three to five years, become a general manager. But we are seeing a supply and demand issue uh, that has forced wages up. So we're not going to talk about the politics of this all that much. We understand that there are political movements, but here's what's happening right now. There are not enough workers, so companies have to raise their wages to attract workers. They are then going to frame that as them doing something nice for workers. That makes sense. If, uh, <laughs> if Simon ordered me to give you a gift, this is just an obscure example, and I gave you the gift, I'm not gonna say, well, Simon told me to give a Nirvana gift. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna be like, wow, I am a thoughtful guy who gave you a gift. That is what Walmart is doing. I think it's fair to say that there are some well-intentioned companies here, but that there's also some companies, and I'll group Walmart in with that, that don't wanna have to do this, but, but absolutely have to. So. Let me throw it out first here, Anirban. Is $15 the new normal or, or will we eventually see enough people enter the job market to, to create pressures in the other direction? Well, my general thought is that once the price 
once the price is set at 15, that I think becomes the default. I think um, it's unlikely that you'll unwind from there. So my, my first guess would be that I think those, those companies that have increased to 15 are going to stay at 15. And they're going to use that, um, you know, in their corporate, um, you know, letters in their, in their corporate strategy, in the advertising strategy as a strategy to basically say, look, you know, we do the right thing. We are we're paying people a fair, fair wage. And, you know, it's, they're helping, you know, those people who are the minimum wage, maybe they were at 10 or 9 or whatever it was. And now they're going to 15. That's for them. It's a substantial increase, he, you know, and that will be the story. So I, I think it's, um, it's likely to stay. I think one of the, you know, I guess what might be, there's a large, probably, I don't know, I'm guessing, large transient population of people who work jobs, you know, students who, and things like that, and holidaymakers, uh, you know, working holidaymakers who come, who are not there right now to fill that, you know, uh, uh, fill that block, and they would, you know, whatever, however many hours they're allowed by law to work, 20 hours maybe, out of 40 in a week. So, but I think the wages probably have gone up, which, um, you know, we'll see how it plays out. That would be my guess. I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, I, I think the wages are going to stay at the companies we just talked about, but I, you've probably not spent a lot of time uh, in a Dunkin' Donuts, which is now just Dunkin', but they so, used to sell donuts, or they still sell them. They're just not in their name, in a Dunkin' versus a Starbucks. And I'm primarily a Starbucks guy. Starbucks does not pay a $15 minimum wage, but Starbucks overall package could be attractive where they might pay you $12.50 an hour, but they have the free college courses. They, you, if you work 20 hours or more, you can get into healthcare. There are stock grants. You're tipped if you're not management. So you might end up making significantly more, maybe not significantly more, but more than $15 an hour. So overall, Starbucks is considered a pretty attractive package. Uh, and they're all corporate owned with the exception of like the fake Starbucks that are in like uh, hotels and things like that, or like the amusement parks. I used to go to a Starbucks in Newington, Connecticut pretty regularly and across the street was a Dunkin'. Every now and then I'd wanna change it up and go to Dunkin'. All the Dunkin' workers did while I was there was complain about how bad their jobs were and how little they were paid and how poorly they were treated. And Dunkin' uses a franchise model. So I didn't know that particular franchise owner I knew another and I, I know he had a much better reputation and his workers, you know, his, at least his management, you know, was reasonably well compensated based on the success of the store. But a lot of Dunkin Donuts, you see the people that Starbucks wouldn't hire. Uh, and I actually think the, the rise to 15 is going to dramatically increase that disparity. So we've already seen sort of in the retail world. Uh, the winners winning, you know, your Walmarts, your Targets, mm -hmm. your Best Buys, your Costcos, they've separated themselves from the pack. I think this is going to make it really difficult on your, your Coles and your Macy's and your Dillard's. And, and some of those probably pay, you know, in, in the $15 range or have, but the companies that can't afford to do this or like a company mm -hmm. like say GameStop, which I, is completely disconnected from their stock price, GameStop relies on hiring mostly people who really like games and they're willing to work for relatively low wages to do that. So I think there's going to be some problems. And look, if you go to a Dunkin' Donuts, the service is not nearly as good as a Starbucks. And I, and I know that's anecdotal, but I'd say that's pretty universal um, because they're not attracting as high level a worker. Um, you know, if, if Chipotle has a career path, their management is going to be better at solving problems. Now, your manager at a McDonald's is often someone getting paid 
pretty well, but that's usually just your top general manager might be running multiple stores. Your shift supervisor, the person making decisions might not be. So again, I generally think higher wages are a good thing, but I'd like to see, and without getting political, I'd like to see some sort of floor in areas tied to cost of living. So look, I, I want, and we talked about this with, with health, the guy who makes my burrito, I want him to have a place to live. <laughs> like I want him to <laughs> not have to come to work sick. I think that's very important. Um, but we're seeing in the fast food world. So I mentioned Taco Bell and Chipotle. Ta Taco Bell and Chipotle both often paid near minimum wage. That can often vary by region. Uh, and they've both gone to $15 an hour signing bonuses. Uh, maybe not here in West Palm, but certainly in the Orlando area where the, the competition for workers what is this going to do to prices? If I went from $8 an hour paying my worker to almost double at $15 an hour across, I don't know how many people work in a Taco Bell, but 30 or 40, like, you know, maybe 20 full-time equivalents when you add it all together, that's a lot of money. My crunchy Doritos thing, or I don't, I've never been to a Taco Bell in a long time. My, my Gordito, whatever it is, or my Mountain Dew monstrosity, that's going to cost more if I have to, if I have to pay workers almost twice as much, right? Yeah, so I mean, here's the thing, right? So for for when you run a restaurant or even a restaurant uh, like in a chain, and you have these stores, right? Your fixed cost, uh, and you have some variable cost, right? So I mean, the the fixed cost are things like you have to pay for the lease, and you have to pay for the equipment lease, and you have to pay for electricity and internet and all those things, right? The variable cost really is your your workers and I guess you know produce, which is which is going to vary based on how much you're you're buying and how much you're selling eventually, right? So, uh, I mean, while the wage might seem wage rise might like be two hundred percent, hundred percent in some cases, in, in some of the worst case maybe, the overall effect actually on an on a unit of product that's selling is probably not that much, right? Like land up being like five six percent, maybe seven you know seven percent, eight percent, something like that, and most of these. Like if you have, a, if you're running a solid brand, if you have a solid, like, I mean, coffee is a commodity, right? But, you know, if you have a brand that sells the coffee, then you have pricing power. So if you've got some bit of pricing power, then every year you increase prices anyways, right? So eventually you will lap that increase. Um, so, yeah, there might be some intermediate uh, term margin impact. It will be very small, relatively small, because, I mean, again, it seems like, again, for a couple of reasons, right? You were already paying anyways higher wages to some of your salary people. Some, some of the people, that you, so you're paying to a smaller percentage of people more. And it's not going to have that much of an impact. So I think, you know, you'll see some increase in costs, but it won't be substantial. That'll be my guess again. There are going to be places, uh, Walmart's probably a good example, where there's been a ripple effect where you can't just uh, bring everyone to 15 and leave the, the low-level manager or ship supervisor at the same rate as the people. So there are absolutely going to be some people who get raises above 15 because of this. And Walmart will always tell you that their average rate of pay plus benefits is much higher than 15. And that could be true if you're using their education benefit or some of the other things. So here's the problem. Here in Florida, we are seeing pretty much $15 as standard. You, you have to go to some pretty sketchy locations. You know, may, maybe if you wanted to work at like the bad neighborhood 7-Eleven, maybe it's not $15, but most places are $15. But 
they can't find enough workers. Now, why is that? There's a couple of reasons. Uh, Childcare has not come back at the level it was pre the pandemic. Some of that is related to school in that a lot of childcare is tied to school. A lot of summer programs are tied to school. Many summer programs weren't sure how they could open. So some opt not to. So there might be a rush of labor come uh, the second week of August when our kids go back to school. But if I'm McDonald's, if I'm Chipotle, even Starbucks, and uh, you mentioned raising prices. Chipotle raised prices 4% uh, in going to a $15 minimum wage. My guess is they'll raise prices again this year to sort of uh, to cover the whole thing. Starbucks raises prices every year on almost everything. So they've already mm-hmm. been doing this. But if I'm any of those companies, I'm looking at automation. I'm not sure that as a Starbucks customer, I care if a robot makes my you know, makes my drink that already has an exact recipe that has no artistic flair, which you might get at an independent coffee shop. I think a Domino's, why wouldn't you automate everything? It, it, all that technology exists. And again, this is going to be a haves and haves not. McDonald's can afford to put in a, a Big Macatron 2000. And I'm not so sure that, you know, Burger King or, or, or Wendy's has that kind of cash. Uh, Anirban, am I wrong? Are we, are we going to not, are we going to see automation or, or am I getting it totally wrong? So I think I think you're right. You'll see some automation. Uh, here's the thing: I'm not 100% sure about. I'm not 100% sure whether I've always thought that automation actually replaces the mid-tier worker, not the lowest-tier worker, not the highest-tier worker, but the highest-tier worker or the higher-tier workers. You're paying for essentially um, more uh, quantitative value creation. You. I think anything that is routine, which is typically be, you know, at the mid, mid level can be replaced, right? And um, I think the classic example I like to give for this one is you think about bookkeepers, right? So bookkeeping is to be a big deal. Bookkeeping, you know, involves having a certain level of education, having, you know, being able to play with rows and columns and knowing what it means and then to code it appropriately. But bookkeeping has been largely you know, is slowly uh, becoming defunct because of bookkeeping software, which can take your bank feeds and automatically automatically label things. So I think that's where sort of, you know, the, the impact of automation happens. In the food industry, though, I have mixed feelings about this. Like, so coffee, right? I can make fantastic coffee using my Nespresso machine at home of whatever flavor I want. Why do I go out and have coffee. A couple of reasons, right? One reason I go out and have coffee is, well, I'm lazy. <laughs> I want somebody else to do it. And I don't want to have the, you know, the pain, this sounds really lame, of taking the pot and putting it in and then, you know, making my frothing my milk and do it. So that's, I'm just trying to avoid that. I want to, I want an experience. Part of the experience though, is when I have coffee, I actually go and have it a couple of shops. I don't go to a third shop. I go to just two shops because I know those people. And one of the attractions is I'm going to chat with them about different things. With one of the, my coffee people, I actually talk about Dogecoin. <laughs> we, you know, and I call them the Doge brothers and we have a bit of a joke. I don't think you can't replace that to the machine, right? So, I mean, the, there are coffee serving machines in, um, in I think, in, in parts of South Korea um, that, you know, in airports, and bring it. Yeah, the, in the, they absolutely exist. Uh, you know, the the American Express Centurion lounges have uh, 
the really nice coffee machine that was in the office of our former employer that could make you a latte, I would put it yeah. at the low end of acceptable. But what you don't see when you're at a Starbucks is a lot of it's automated anyway. The human is, is loading the things, they're doing some of the, the grunt yes. work. That can really be replaced. And, and if you look at what's the value of the employee at, the star, at a Starbucks, the value is that the person knows you, starts to know your mm -hmm. order, and knows the appropriate amount of interaction. Because I go to some local places in addition to Starbucks. And my favorite local place I stopped going to for a while because I used to go at like slower times, like 10 in the morning, and the general manager was ready for a break and he knew I was a fan of the New York Rangers. And I was there happy to chat for three or four minutes, not happy to chat for 20 or 30 minutes because I was there with a laptop to work. So for a while, I had to just kind of only go there on the weekends because there's no polite way to say, hey, I like you, you know, you want to meet for a drink or go watch a game? Like, that's great, but I can't do that at 10 in the morning. So I think the Starbucks, the role is for them to know a little bit about you. I, you know, in my case, you know, oh, your son's not with you today and you chat for two minutes while your drink is being made. That's the social part that you start to know mm -hmm. other people in the store. Maybe you have a little bit of interaction. That part is really valuable. I actually don't see any value to the person making my drink. Because again, they're working from exact recipes. This is not, I walk into the artisanal coffee shop in Seattle and the person can talk about the beans for 20 minutes and you know pouring the water at exactly this temperature for exactly this amount of times. Starbucks is engineered to be McDonald's basically. Look, McDonald's, <laughs> their employees aren't making the coffee. That, that's all very, very automated. Um, I'm in favor of this and we're seeing it in a few places. So we talked a little bit about retail. But Target has made a heavy push into self-checkout. Now, self-checkout doesn't replace all the people. Why is that? Sometimes I don't know where the barcode is. Sometimes mm -hmm. I want to buy wine and someone has to come over and make sure I'm 21. Sometimes people steal or they leave something in the bottom of their cart and they unintentionally and someone has to be like, oh, hey, you forgot the toilet paper there. Like, so for mm -hmm. every like four people, there's one and it doesn't work that well. I don't like it but I do think eventually it will be efficient, it will solve a problem. The other place you're seeing, uh, you're seeing robots is inventory. I don't need a human to go to the shelf and, and do a scan and see that there should be 30 rolls of paper towel, and there's only five. You've also seen some cleaning being done by robot, which uh, you know, mm -hmm. that's certainly something with the, the protocols, the COVID protocols, we're gonna see more of, overnight sanitation robots and things like that. But Anirban, let me ask you, do you think we're moving towards a world where it's more like Amazon Go, where like the clerk and the checkout is irrelevant? Because I actually think that's a, a loss for a lot of stores. Like as someone who worked the counter when I ran the toy store, that's one of the ways I got to know my customers. But in the grocery world, in the, the mass retail world, is the checkout person still relevant? Well, that's a good question you ask because in my experience, this is something that I observed personally. Like so the, the two... Uh, big um, grocery chains here in Australia, Coles and Woolworths, I think 10 years ago, there was no self-checkout and they were always manned by someone, right? Now, they have the same number actually of, of human man checkout points. They just don't have humans there anymore. <laughs> They're closed. And you do exactly what you're saying. You, you, you basically self-checkout and there's someone standing there to help you out with a machine can't, you know, machine is unhappy that the weight of the object doesn't look like the weight of the object it should be and things like that. I, I think lot majority of retail stores are going to be like this, where, you know, it's going to be 80% self-checkout, 
20 percent you know check out by human being because you know somebody can't do it or somebody needs help or whatever um, it's i think or, inevitable or i live in florida somebody is paying by check that uh, that is <laughs> that is certainly possible the way i see it so starbucks, starbucks i think is actually an anomaly because their ceo kevin johnson has said we're not automating to take people out of stores we are automating to put people in front of customers. Uh, so right now they've automated things like inventory. So there's no store person who has to be counting how many napkins they need to order. And instead that store person could be making sure I have a napkin or could be saying hello to me or could be jumping in and producing more drinks or warming up more croissants or whatever it is. I actually think that's not gonna be the norm. I, I think we're moving towards a world where again, your Habs, your McDonald's. Look, a McDonald's franchise, McDonald's franchisees did not love it when the company decided on McDonald's 2.0, uh, you know, store of the future, I think is what they called it. And that meant iPads and ordering kiosks. And what did you find? Mm -hmm. When you have people order via an iPad, there's a little bit of a pain point while they learn how to do it. And then they order more. They also order a little more finicky because maybe they don't like pickles, but they'll just take them off. It's not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. It's really easy on the iPad. There's a lot of customer satisfaction once you get over that initial hurdle. That obviously tied really well into their app. And at some point you argue like, well, why do I need an iPad? Like who doesn't have a phone? And that might be true. Mm -hmm. So I think you're going to see sort of the end of that traditional ordering. You're going to see some production like making fries is always the same. So there's really no reason that just can't be a robot arm. And, and maybe a person has to fill the bin the way someone has to pour the coffee into the Starbucks mm -hmm. mostly automated machine. But I do think we're moving towards automation, but I don't think, and again, feel free to tell me I'm wrong. I don't think we're moving to some sort of crisis of workers unless you're a worker not capable of being in a customer facing role. Because I do think the vast majority of workers, even if they're doing reshelving or other things, the person reshelving at Target has to be able to stop what they're doing, answer my question and find me the item I want. Uh, and that's not every person. So I do think there's gonna be some workers that maybe have to find a new line of work, but I think we're talking like a 10% reduction, a 15% reduction. And you'll also see a, a, a boomerang effect, uh, You know, not to get too Australian here, where some businesses go the other direction and they say everything we do here is handmade like like our coffee shop we're, we're not starbucks we're an artisanal coffee house and and you know every bean is hand ground we don't even use an electric grinder like we whip our own cream like i think you've seen that you know sort of folksy you know farm to table you know tale as well so i'm not overly worried about a worker crisis but i do think higher wages mean uh, it's probably not great for teenagers. I, I have a 17 year old who, if he had a car, could easily get a job, but in the places right around here, uh, cannot. Uh, and I'm not so sure if I was Target and you could walk to Target from my house, that I'd want to hire a limited availability teenager and have to pay him $15 an hour. I'd much rather pay him $9 an hour when he works for me for a year and he's college age or, or, or wants a full-time job. You know, maybe then I'll pay him $15 an hour. Am I... Am I reading any of this incorrectly? I, I think it's it gets so political that we forget that just it, it, it's real business involved here. Yeah, so I think the internship point, like, you know, when you have somebody who's a worker but really is an intern, you kind of got to pay them intern wages. And that's good for both sides. One person gets kind of less work, but is training a person up. Another person gets experience. 
and and I think it works hand in hand. I think I totally see that. Um, the the point you are making, I think, is is true. People will have. It, we always fear automation, right? And I use the bookkeeping example. Um, you know, before that Excel came, and people were worried that you know all these uh, people who were you know doing record keeping manually, right? The, it has an. I think it has an impact on a transitory basis. Those people who can't retrain or go to another job, right? That's sort of the disruption. But after that. It just happens that you know uh, we are you know human beings are good enough at picking up other skills that you know complement the machine, and, and we do that pretty well. So customer service, for example, is something that you know is machines are a long way off from doing customer service. <laughs> Robots are a long way off from doing customer service, right? And your smarter companies, your WalMarts and your Target, they're doing their own version of school where they see where the world is going and they're offering training opportunities and. I'll go back to when I used to work in my family business, uh, the, the location I ran was a factory, almost entirely a factory. And I went, well, that's not going to work. Like we're buying more things from China. Like a lot of what we make is just not long for this world. So I brought in scaffold rental and, and that was a, a difficult choice to make. It's very expensive. It's probably, you know, a, you know, a, a half million dollar initial investment of equipment you have to bring in. And I sat the workers down and I said, here are the jobs we're going to have available a year from now. So if anybody wants to step up and be like the foreman of the scaffolding group and go, go learn this stuff and where it is and what it does and how to load trucks, well, that's going to be a management opening that someone could step up, up into. And the existing manager there uh, who ran everything was very resistant. And I sat down with him multiple times and I said, look, you got to go to another location and learn these skills because I can't pay your salary to run a factory that's going to be half as big that, that I can run because it's only going to make a couple of products. And after a year of being ignored, when I, when I had to let him go, it was awful. It wasn't fun. I liked this guy, but he wanted to do the same job he'd always done. I think that's going to be a challenge for some mm -hmm. of these companies uh, that they have entrenched workers that don't want to learn new skills. But again, I think this is going to be a haves and a haves not. So, so let's talk about how do you invest this? Uh, in my mind, if you're going to invest in automation and sort of the changing workforce, I would look at the companies that can afford to make the best decision. Now, Starbucks might decide that it's great to automate heating up its croissant, but they should never fully automate the coffee, even if it's just the illusion that a person is, is creating your drink. I trust them to figure it out and do it the right way. Same thing with McDonald's, same things with with Target, with Walmart. I mean, there's been heavy automation of things like inventory using drones at, you know, at, at a Walmart, and there's heavy investment. When I look to that second tier of, of retailers, of restaurants, I'm not so sure your, your Chili's and your Popeye's and your Burger King's of the world are necessarily going to keep up. So might they succeed because people like their products? Sure. But from an investing point of view, this is a, a drive to quality. Your thoughts on here, bud? Yeah, I think I agree, agree with that. So whenever there's a big shift, I think that that's the impact, right? The the winners here actually significantly benefit, and the ones who are going to tier two, tier three are actually going to be the ones that are not going to benefit and are going to be left behind because a either the, you know paying more for them has an impact in terms of their ability to pass on the costs, so their margins go down, right? Um, and at the same time, 
are they able to actually invest in new technology that's required to compete um, and bring, you know, uh, relatively reduce their cost elsewhere for the cost increase that they're seeing um, on the wages front. So I, I think that makes it, I mean, quality um, is, is interesting from that point of view. And quality is always interesting because it's sort of, you know, one simple way to think about quality is that it is basically betting on a team of people who know how to navigate the times, right? And that's why the good companies win over the long period, whereas not so good companies, they, they are the ones who actually go down over the long period, right? Over the, over the long time frame, right? The mediocre ones are the ones that suffer, the, the quality ones actually shine. So I think, you know, focusing on people and systems around a company really helps. Um, in, in uh, you know, I, I, I don't have any other basic thought in addition to what you really covered, I think that, that in the quality aspect is, is the one, I guess I'll add one thing. If you think about automation, it also thinks it is, you know, so there's there's automation in industries, and then we can therefore think about, you know, if you think about retail, or we are, we are thinking about, you know, automation and say home building, we want to think about those companies that can benefit from it. The other thing to think about is what, what are the companies that are going to help in automation? And so there could be some technology companies there that might help with automation. There might be some robotics companies there that might actually help with automation. So it might be worthwhile to think about whether there are, you know, one or two winners that seem like the obvious um, or at least are shaping up at this point to look like the obvious winners of that category. So if it's, you know, if it is, if somebody has this, um, uh, you know, automated coffee machine with a robotic arm that does everything that everyone's going to have, um, then, well, that's a good company maybe to bet on, right? So something to think about is, is are there other sectors that, you know, that are going to be driving this trend that are going to actually benefit from it? So there's a couple of thoughts there. So I, I think we've seen a version of this already in the logistics space, uh, where your biggest players, your Amazon, your Walmart, your Target, and maybe just those three had the ability to, to spend the money to handle all their own logistics and their supply chain. And then you're seeing a couple of other companies. You're seeing FedEx on one level handle a lot of logistics for companies. And the real winner, I would say, is Shopify. You're seeing Shopify sign up some really big brands that are not big enough to build out an Amazon-style supply chain. Now, Amazon is also getting into that space uh, with their big commerce deal, which we talked about on a show a couple of weeks ago. So I, I look at like a Shopify and say they might be able to be go into the space of outsourcing some of this. Like I've seen you know, some, some products that are not millions of dollars that allow a grocery store to automate much of the order picking process. Well, maybe a small regional chain can't do that, but they can provide a warehouse and partner with someone who can do that. Uh, that's, I, I don't know how to invest in that yet, though I probably bet on Shopify being, being part of the answer there. And I think you're going to see though you're going to see those plays as well. But I will say, Anirban, there's great technology that can make you a coffee or a drink, but it's not all the way there yet. Because I've told this story on air before. I was in Las Vegas uh, uh, with our friend Matt Frankel, and we both sat down at, a, at an automatic bionic bar, and I paid fifteen dollars, and I got a gin and tonic, and it sloshed all over. It, it overflowed. There's no robot napkin that comes and cleans cleans it up. And then Matt got some drink that was like undrinkable. It was, it was absolutely too sweet. There's no human being to go complain to. So 
I mentioned the, the, the coffee machine before. It's pretty good. It's good enough. If I'm in the American Express lounge and it doesn't cost me any more money, mm. I might do that rather than go spend $7 at, a, at, an airbook, at an airport coffee shop. I think there's a ways to go, but we already did see like a fully automated Shake Shack, uh, which was a bit of a gimmick, ran a couple of years ago. So this is going to be an interesting one to play out. For investors, yeah, I would look a little bit at are there any emerging companies to watch uh, that are in this space that could get acquired? We've seen a lot of big acquisitions. You know, Amazon buying up Kiva uh, was a good example. These companies don't often make it to public. Uh, we saw that with Shipped mm. and Target. Uh, so logistics and robots, if you can get in on some of these, there might be investing advice. Right now, it's one to keep an eye on. So we're going to shift gears here a little bit, and we're going to move into the home stretch. So this is a question... I've asked much of the team, not all of the team, because I can never remember who I've asked and there's so many shows. Uh, but here's the question. What's one red flag that generally keeps you from buying a stock? Mine was uh, treating customers well. If a, if a company hates me, I don't want to own their stock no matter how good a business it is. So I don't care what dividend AT&T pays, I'm not buying AT&T stock because they clearly don't like their customer base. I apologize to the AT&T executive ended <laughs> by that, but your track record says uh, that no matter how hard you're trying, you haven't fixed it. And Irban, your thoughts here. Yeah, I love good customer service is excellent. Actually, it's a really good indicator. You know, what? My uh, one of the things I look for is dilution. <laughs> how much, uh, you know, uh, how much of you, how, how much quantitative easing is a company doing? <laughs> Every company nowadays thinks that they're the, you know, they're the Federal Reserve and therefore they can print as many shares as they want to. And, and this, I've seen this happen a couple of times with companies that have invested in which, you know, Twitter actually at one point had an investment. And, and Twitter, you know, it was not growing as fast as you say, you know, Facebook or something else, but it was growing. The problem was that the share count was growing at a fast pace and there was no growth on a fair share basis. So I, I really watch for companies' dilution and it really, I think it's something that goes under the radar for a lot of people because, you know, you have to look at the balance sheet. And, uh, but I just, I have a, I have a little bit of a, um, you know, love-hate relationship with the dilution. I mean, you know, you can use it appropriately to reward your, uh, you know, your sales and marketing team and your executives and your R&D team and things like that. But you need to know how to use it carefully and it shouldn't be like, you know, more than a couple of percentage points. And if it's more than that every year, then you better have really fantastic growth or you have a huge, you know, total addressable market. So, yeah, that's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, and I'll, I'm fine with a company using dilution to acquire sales. So if, if, you're, if you're adding 25% in revenue by diluting your stock, that could pay off, especially if there's synergy and back-end savings. I actually, we've talked about this with Apple. When the opposite happens and the share count decreases, that mm. is tremendously beneficial. That's also a slippery slope because I don't like seeing share buyback unless a company has so much cash that it can still do all the R&D, all the acquisitions, all the things it needs to do and then have cash left over. There aren't that many companies. Apple and Microsoft come to mind. I'm sure there's a few others, uh, but there aren't that many that can do that. But that just becomes a, a wealth builder for people. Yeah. So, yeah, that is yeah, so I, 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 Apple, just, just sort of interrupting you. Apple, for example, has, I think, decreased the share count by something like 30%. 
in I think the last five or six or some some number of years or maybe ten years or I don't know. But that's a huge impact, right? And it's not that it has come at the cost of his R and D. To your point, yeah, I mean, you know, um, here's actually here's the other thing. This is this is not a red flag, but I think people use this as a green flag, and I have problems with using it as a green flag. This is, actually, this is interesting. So, using R and D spend as a green flag doesn't necessarily mean that it's useful R&D. And the reason I point this out is there are companies, you know, that will be spending 20, 30%, you know, on their R&D. But the, the thing you need to see is what you are you getting out of the R&D? And had you actually reduced your R&D spend, what would you get? And two companies that are really good and frugal with R&D, one is Apple. Its R&D spend is actually, as a percentage basis of revenue, which is what most people would look at, is actually significantly lower than other big tech. The other one that's really good with its frugal R&D spend is Tesla. It doesn't spend as much on R&D compared to, again, the big tech, but it gets a lot out of it. So I think getting more bang for your buck really basically means it in, it's indicative of focus, right? It says that you're focusing on a small set of products, a small set of things, and you, 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 know, you, you want to bet not the farm on multiple things, but you want to bet the farm on a few things, which can go wrong but which also increases the probability, I think, of success because you hire the people that you need for those particular products or those particular you know, things that you want to explore. Yeah, I mean, the opposite model has been Alphabet, where a lot of, of Google shareholders would like to see them spin off their, their moonshots and all these divisions. Now, realistically, if they're spending all this money across you know, 20 different projects and one of them pays off, it might turn out. But so far, that's largely been a sinkhole. There's been a lot of failures. Uh, I spent a lot of years writing about Google Fiber, which uh, is not a thing. I mean, it, it might exist in some markets. There's been a lot of mistakes there. Um, I want to see companies spending small amounts, nibbling at the edges of things. I imagine there are small teams at Apple working on things we would never imagine they're working on with all sorts of milestones. Uh, that was certainly true when I was at Microsoft, that there were projects that you know never really saw the light of the day light of day that you might do some internal testing on but those weren't big teams those weren't billion dollar bets and nearby mahante we've talked way too long uh, i want to finish up the show i want to uh get back to the beautiful cherokee mountains i am in like one of the prettiest places i've ever been it is 80 degrees the pool is absolutely wonderful here the gambling is good i am with uh, a handful of our former colleagues so I, i'm very delighted uh, to be catching up with people, but I'm also delighted to have gotten to catch up with you now. And we will see you perhaps on Friday show if you happen to wake up. Uh, that is a whole team show airing uh, at 1230. So a little bit later than usual, but if not, certainly next week, uh, probably from Orlando, Florida, or technically Davenport, Florida. Until then, I guess I will throw it back to myself. Back to me. Thank you, Sam Bailey. Interview from West Palm Beach. I am now, as I said, in Cherokee, North Carolina, on my way to Birmingham, Alabama. Mom, thank you for con your concern. D, let, uh, Sam, throw up that first comment from D. Let's take that to close this segment out. Software engineering jobs are not safe either. OpenAI and GitHub uh, develop Copilot, uh, a code-completing bot. Things like that will make software developers 10 times or even 100 times more efficient. Yes and no. So we've seen this a lot in the development world. Uh, a lot of the people I worked with back in the early internet days that were coding to maintain server, server farms, well, some of them evolved and they work in the cloud and some of them don't work or they work for companies that still use server farms. So I think you're going to see 
there will be jobs in the technical space. There's going to be room there. We appreciate so many of you watching the show. We know it's a little weird when we don't go live and fully interactive, but we'd like to get Anirban on. Uh, I was a little bit worried about the internet connection uh, here in North Carolina up in the mountains. If you are not a subscriber, it is time for you to join 7investing. That is $49 a month or $399 a year. You can join us at 7investing.com slash subscribe. And if you join... Uh, before Friday morning, you will get access to our new member call, that's 10 a.m., and our advisor update call. Our, all of our team, maybe not in, in near bond because of the time difference, we'll talk about uh, our picks, our, our highest conviction recommendations, all of the questions you want answered. We'll do that from 10 to, to uh, or from 11 to 12.30, and then from 12.30 to around 1.30, we will do a special time, 7investing now with everybody, where we're going to talk about how we build our portfolio. That's going to be the theme of that show. So uh, again, we know it's a little strange because this show is usually really interactive, uh, and we promise that's what it'll be like on Friday, but we want to get Anirban in. We appreciate so many of you for watching. Sam Bailey, let's hit our finisher. What's your biggest red flag when it comes to a stock? This was overwhelmingly uh, bad management. Um, I'm actually going to go a little bit different and say it's poor customer service. Sam, you could take this down. Um, there's companies that have bad management that overcome it. I don't know that there are all that many companies with poor customer service, but a lot of people said in the Twitter comments here, you know, you can't overcome. It all comes from the top, and you're probably right. So I'm going to give that one to you. Uh, this has been a special episode. I am on the road quite a bit in the next few weeks, going to be coming to you from uh, – Jacksonville, Florida at some point, Davenport, Florida, maybe a cruise ship, maybe the Bahamas, not even sure. A lot of different places. If you'd like to get in touch with us, that's info at 7investing.com. The people who are in the coffee shop with me today are probably wondering what the heck is going on. Uh, And that is for questions about your membership, questions about joining, questions about how this service works. If you want to interact with us, opinions on the news of the day, that is at 7investing, at the number 7investing on Twitter. We appreciate you for watching. We'll all be back. Don't forget, it's 12.30 live on Friday. Sam Bailey, thank you. We'll see you Friday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.